Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Today's Bible reading is from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 26. When I finish reading the word, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. James 2, 1 to 26. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but to the poor man you say, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you commit adultery, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be known to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without spirit is dead, so so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for that long reading, Jumoke. 
thank you all uh, for being patient. And once again, if you maybe if you weren't around when I did the first welcome, um, you are welcome again to City Church. So we've been going through. Well, we just started a brand new series. Um, it's not going to be too long. It's for six. It's six uh, messages, and it's in the book of James. We're going through the entire book of James, and. The title of the series is Gospel Community, Gospel Community. And today we are looking at, uh, last, last week we looked at a religious community, this week we are looking at an impartial community. Now, um, I remember in the early 90s, um, the, probably the most popular show on TV, um, probably around between, I don't know, 91, 92, 93, 94, the biggest show on TV, do you, who remembers? Huh? So says Cosby Show. Is that what he said? <laughs> Talk about Nigerian TV, right? <laughs> Checkmate. Tells by moonlight. See your head. <laughs> Checkmate. Checkmate was a soap opera. It was um, created by the late great Amaka Igwe, and it was it was it was the it was it was um, it was a fantastic thing. I think it starred Ego Momana, Ego Boyo, Richard Mofet Damijo, uh, um, Francis Agu, Bob Manuel Doku, Bimbo Manuel, Mildred Deweka, and all of that. And you know, there are many different things that you have in a good soap opera, many different sections. But perhaps the most interesting section, at least for children at that time, was a section of a particular household. It was called the Fuji household, right? It was by this chief, this man, Chief Fuji, played by Kunle Baptefa, right? He had, initially had, he had two wives. There was the Yoruba first Yali, and then there was another woman called Peace. She was anything but peaceful, an Igbo woman. Now, they had a lot of children for Chief. But you know, Chief had to step up with the times. You know, the two women were getting, they were getting a little bit old. And so Chief started, you know, looking around. And then he found this lady. Irriti. You know, she had, she was a modern Lagosian woman. She had the talk. She had everything. Looked, you know. She got to it like, like someone, like else truly, you know. And the best thing about her was that really chief um, um, love was when she talked about all the kind of food that she could do. She had all this, the mede mede, you know. She talked about the oh, chicken peri peri, the oysters in this. And the whole thing was just driving chief, just, he was driving crazy. So he gave her a name. The name was Catherine Practical. Catherine Practical was her name. So eventually they got married. The other two wives didn't really like it. Got married, and now it was time for her to put the practical into the catering. And so she started cooking. And she brought in all the different kinds of salads and everything. Started eating, and you could imagine, uh, where's the chief ate it? You know this kind of... You know, have you ever gone somewhere? The thing, you didn't like it, but somebody else was paying for it. So you have to smile. And he forced everybody in the house to eat. All the children must eat. They weren't happy, they weren't happy. Until one day, there was an aluta. The children, they sang a song. Because they were like, they couldn't take this anymore. And they sang something like this. Oh, Eba. Oh, Eba. When shall I see Dodo? Ireti, give us fufu. When shall I see Ilan Egusi? I will never forget Pomo. He really wanted them to forget Pomo. <laughs> it didn't take Chief very long to say, look, at the end of the day, 
There's a lot of catering here, but there's no practical in it. Well, the book of James with 59, with 59 commands in 108 verses can be called the New Testament's gospel practical. Because chief learned that talk is cheap unless you actually bring or demonstrate what it is that you are talking about. And in many ways, what James is saying is that you can talk about the gospel. Well, somehow, even just talking about the gospel, talk can be cheap. You have to put the gospel into practice. And what he wants to show us is, when you talk about the community of the gospel, that is the church. One of the things, the realities that we find outside of the church, but also inside the church, is that the church is meant to be made up of different people socioeconomically. That is, people who have different levels of incomes, people who have had different levels of education. This diversity, usually outside the church, but inside the church, is usually dealt with in one way. Favoritism. Partiality. That is, you favor one group of people, usually the people with more wealth, and then those without, you actually not favor. And James wants to show us that in the community of the gospel, we shouldn't have favoritism. In fact, the gospel community should be an impartial community. Now, for us to expand on that, I want us to think about this sequence of statements, these three sequence of statements. A, dead, a deedless faith is dead. A living faith is impartial. An impartial faith is salvific. A deedless faith is dead. A living faith is impartial. And an impartial faith is salvific. And those will be my three points. First point, a deedless faith is dead. Second, a living faith is impartial. And third, an impartial faith is salvific. Now, let's go to verse 14. In fact, really, this, this whole chapter, you can really look at it in two sections. One is 1 to 13, and then the second one is 14 to 26. Now, in 14, we see James here asking a question. He says this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? And this is a that has plagued not just our church, but as you can see, it was plaguing the church in the, uh, in the first century. Now, I say it plagues the church, if I think of the Lagosian church, is a big problem now. What good is it? He repeats the question again in verse 16, that what good is it? Faith without deeds. Now, this part, this verse 14 to verse 26, James really is making the same point, but he structures it in different ways. For instance, he gives us many illustrations of the point he wants to prove. So verses 15 to 16 is one illustration. Verse 19 is another illustration. Verse 26, uh, in the first part of verse 26, 26 is another illustration. But he also gives us examples, particularly from the Old Testament. He gives us two, from verse 21 to verse 23, and in verse 25 as well. And then with those, he has conclu a conclusive statement. The point he's trying to make. He says it about four times. In verse 17, he says it. Faith by itself, is not, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20, faith without deeds is useless. Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. And then, verse 26b, so faith without deeds is dead. And so that's the point he's trying to make. For instance, take the first two illustrations. In verse 15 to 16, 
He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and well fed. The Lagosian version of that is, it is well. The guy is hungry. He cannot eat, it is well. You know that. It is well, even if you, you can't even put salt on it, or curry, or all of those things. Yes, you can say it is well, you can pray for the person, but if you have the means to also help the person in that particular need and you don't do it, he said it's useless to him. Or take a body. A body that does not have... When someone dies, what do we say? There's a phrase where you can say, the person has given up his ghost or his spirit. If someone that we see here living, breathing, doing all those things, if that spirit leaves, we don't call him a person again. We now call him a corpse. And that's what he says in verse 26. To make the point that deedless faith is dead. And that's why, if you have to answer the question he's asked in verse 14, which is, what good is it? It isn't good. Deadless faith is not good. But he also says it's useless in verse 20. But even more tragic, he says this. It cannot save, verse 14. Can such faith save them? He's saying that faith alone cannot save you. That's exactly what he's saying. Whoa. Hang on. What do you mean? Faith alone cannot. Faith with works, you need it to save. And if you've been a Christian for a short space of time, or you've been a Christian for a long time, you're already, it's already ringing in your ears. Uh, sorry. No, because what I heard is that we are saved by faith alone without any works, isn't it? So which leads me to then introduce somebody that is actually at the back of your head. You know his name? His name is Paul. Because you heard that from Paul. Paul would tell you that you cannot be saved by works of the law. So, for instance, if you compare Galatians 2, 15 to 16, listen. We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have, have, we too, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that they say we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And you compare that with James in 2.14 who says, can such faith save them? If someone claims to have faith but no deeds, can such faith save them? Or listen to Paul again in Romans 4. Because James brings up Abraham to make his point. Well, Paul says, I too can bring up Abraham. Romans chapter 4, verse 2 to 5. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. James quotes that too. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith, not without any works, is credited to them as righteousness. And yet, James would say, after thinking about Abraham, he says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him to righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that the person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And then someone says, 
You see why I'm not a Christian? Because it's contradictory. It is manifestly contradictory. On the one hand, you're telling me it's justified by faith, alone without works. On the other hand, you're telling me that faith cannot save you. you it can't justify you. Now, if you're that kind of person, some of us here as Christians will say, yeah, actually, it's contradictory, but I'm going to believe it anyway. Do you have a better alternative? And so my faith is confused. I you know a confused human being. The whole world is confused. And since it's human authors, well, James wrote this one, Paul wrote that one. Of course, if they had time to see each other and speak to each other, they probably would have ironed out. Except the fact that they did get to see each other many times. But there's another way. And the other way, and I would appeal to you, sometimes we try to treat the Bible in a way that we don't treat other difficult texts. Look, in the Bible, there are some things that are easy, very straightforward. Don't commit adultery. There is no, don't look for the Greek in that or the Hebrew. But there are some things that sometimes you have to do a little bit of hard work. Are you immune from hard work? A little bit of study to be able to see that maybe there is a way to harmonize it. And I actually think there is. How many of us know what a broom is? Now, when I say broom, I'm not talking about those things that you hold up here. In the I'm talking about broom, you know? Igbale. You know what that is, right? Now, what do we use it for? We sweep. But there's another thing you can use it for. Have you tried to kill a fly with your hand before? Have, who has killed a fly? Fly. I'm talking about fly, not fly. You like that. The way you like to kill mosquitoes. I mean, if you have done it before, raise up your hand. All liars go to hell. Raise up your hand. Okay, there are some, there are some superstars here. That fly was, maybe it had only one leg. But I can assure you, forget the time before the, the advent of insecticide. Igbale was always trusted to kill flies. Isn't it? Yeah. Like if you stand, you kind of wait, wait, because the problem, the thing is that it covers a large area. So before that, that thing can fly, so the thing catches it. The same broom used to sweep dirt is also used to kill a fly. The same item, two different problems. The same item, what? A way do. <laughs> Some people don't understand what that is. That's small. Uh, it's not a ballet exactly. It's not. All right, let's bring it back together. Before we start talking about how about Ila and that. No, no. That same Igbale, Igbale is used. The same thing is used for two different problems. One is dirt sweep. The other one is a fly kill. You don't try to, the way you use it on the fly, you don't try and use it with dirt. If you do that, the dust will just spread, scatter. And if you try to sweep the fly, it will fly away. <laughs> and that's the same thing we have with James and Paul. The reason that they sound as though they are contradictory is that they are using the same gospel to attack two different problems. You see, Paul was dealing with a problem called legalism. James was dealing with a problem called license or antinomianism. They preached the same gospel, but they were applying it to two different problems. Legalism is basically salvation through good deeds. 
Antinomianism, antinomianism basically is antinomian, nomos is the word, Greek word for law, so anti-law. Antinomianism is basically salvation with deeds as an option. And so they are facing two different sets of people, and so the gospel is applied in a different way. So the word justify, when coming out of the mouth of Paul and coming out of the mouth of James, they mean slightly different things. So that the Greek word just, that, that translates to justify, can have two different ways of being used. It always means make right. That's why it's so tightly connected to righteous. That is, if somebody is justified, he is made righteous. It means make right. But the making right is slightly nuanced or different. Let me give you an example of maybe that can help. Uh, single guy, come. Are you single? Yeah? Okay, good. All right. Um, what's your name again? Victor. All right. Single girl, who's going to come? Who wants to volunteer? Look at they're all looking down. They're all looking down now. All right, I'm not going to apply. So, okay, let's say Victor here. Victor, I'm going to call him. His new name is Frank Donga. Okay? <laughs> now, Frank Donga goes to, he goes to a, 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 a spa, right? And when he goes to spa, he's going with his trolley, right? You're you are shopping, you're putting things. Then you spot one. One nice looking lady. And you think, ah, it's a good deal. I just had one contract. And as you know, the contract, um, after you, you signed the contract, you, you finished it yesterday. And whilst you are in spa, in spa there, you know what happened? You heard, putum. <laughs> what did he hear? An alert. And you know. So he checked it and he saw the alert. And the alert showed that ah, they had deposited the money. So Frank then spotted that good looking lady there. And he saw that she was putting stuff in her trolley. Now, what happens when she puts things in her trolley? You know what happens? She is now in debt. You see? She has taken some things. She, be, she, she wants to possess them, but she hasn't paid for it. So she's now in what? Debt. So she goes to the till. And Frank is behind her. And so as she's about to, he says, uh, Auntie, Auntie. Don't worry. Don't worry. I got it. <laughs> alert, alert. No, it's not false alert. Real alert. I am remaking the Frank Donga story. I have the right to do that. So, there are some three ladies that are there. They don't like it. There's a bit of the, of the till. So, there's a bit of jealousy there. And they didn't even like the way she was dressed. So, at that point, when he said, I got it, she quickly said, ah, I'm coming. Please hurry up. So, she went back. <laughs> went and carried some things, put it inside. And obviously, Frank, Victor, is calculating, is calculating, but it's fine. He still got it. So eventually, what happens? He pays for her. The thing goes through. She goes. But there's one more thing. You know, in Nigeria, I don't know why in Lagos, we have one more issue when you go to shop now. There are these people at the gate. What do they want? They want your what? Your receipt. And this particular security person, when she entered, she didn't even greet him. She didn't greet him. He didn't like Jesus. And he now sees that what is inside her trolley is like, what, 100,000 now? And he says, Auntie, how do I know that you pay for this thing? He said, it's paid for. How do I know? What does she do? She brings out the receipt. And then he sees it, 
and then she goes. Frank has done very well. Victor, may you spot somebody in spa? That's it. Or, or here, or at single in Lagos. Now, what does that story tell us? At the till, she was in debt. And at the till, she had to be made right. How could she be made right at the till? Her debt needed to have been paid for. How was it paid for? Someone else would paid for it. So she was justified by Frank Donga, by his card. She was made right out of debt, was now put in a place where she had no debt again. She was made right by his card, isn't it? But by the time she gets to the, to the, to the um, security, the security guard also wants her to, be, to make right. Because when you came in, you didn't come with a trolley. Now I'm seeing with a trolley. Is she going to make right by now paying with a card? No, she makes right by demonstrating that she's been made right. Till, being made right at the till, that's Paul. Being made right at the security post, that's James. That is, when she was paid, what was paid for, it had nothing to do with what she did or what she had. Someone else paid for her. But at the till, the proof, the evidence that you've been paid for was now produced. The Greek word that translates justify can either be made right because something has been taken care of for you or to demonstrate that something has been taken care of. Do you understand? So James is trying to say, look, if I do not see deed, your faith has not been made complete. That's why it says later in the verse, it says about Abraham, in verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. It wasn't that his, the, his deeds were paying an additional thing. It was that his deeds coming together with his faith, that demonstration of it made the picture of faith much more complete. So James, Paul is dealing with legalism, but James is dealing with something else called antinomianism. You see in verse 18 when he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Now, we have that big problem now in Lagos. What is he trying to do? They treat, it's like treating faith and deeds like apples and oranges. Like you can so separate them. If I ask you, what is two oranges plus three apples, what will you say? Exactly. So it means you, you see, five oracles. Five oracles. <laughs> Someone said to Paul, too much reading is making you mad. I don't know whether it is your, your warehouse people. <laughs> two oranges plus three apples. It gives you what? Two oranges plus three apples. In other words, there's faith here. But there's deeds here. You have faith. You see, you have deeds. But I have faith. I have read Paul. There's nothing. I am justified by faith only, so I can do whatever I like. Recently, there was, this is really funny. I will not call the name to protect the guilty. But a certain Nigerian celebrity lady recently displayed her pregnancy to all. Now, she's unmarried. Now, I'm not judging because if you are unmarried and you are not a Christian, 
in many ways, if you, if you are sleeping with people, like, that's, that's what you do. So, but she puts it there, and then a caption after she said everything and blah, blah, she then says, and God will grant you your own desires as well. In other words, she's speaking as though she's doing a Christian thing. Where there's nothing wrong, and being, God granted me. I've always wanted to be pregnant. Fine, you know, I've not yet gotten married, but God gave me this one there. In other words, she's saying, if you then say, how are you a Christian? He says, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? I believe in Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's faith here, and there is deeds there. This bifurcation, this separation of faith and deeds is something that James is saying, I don't think you understand. If you are saying that you have faith here and you have deeds here, he said, well, I will demonstrate my faith by my deeds. Another one some people try to do in separating it is by saying, you know what, ah, you know, <laughs> uh, it's good for us to believe God. It's good for us to, to, to pray, to believe God. Let's believe God. But you know that we also have to do our own thing, you know, it is the, the hand of God, but the leg of man. So you must, you must do your own, we must, we must pray to God, but you must do your own part. Because faith without works is, what the person is saying is that you are separating them like apples and oranges. And whereas James is saying, the relationship between faith and works is not like apple and oranges, it is like an apple branch and an apple fruit. The branch and the fruit are not the same. But the branch and the fruit are connected. And so that is why he says, you, be, um, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. In fact, he even says something even scarier. He now likens it with demons. You know, those that then say, because they've learned something, they've learned a new book, because they've moved from, you fought your parents, uh, your, the problem with your parents was legalism. You run away from that, you've entered antinomianism. And he says, look, demons also, they know, they know the Bible. You believe there is one God. But the demons too. They believe. If you say it's about believing, the demons also believe. That is, for them, faith is also a mental acceptance of something. If faith for you is just, I said something. I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead as a an aspect of fact, then it is not yet salvific because demons are not saved. They shut that because there's judgment coming for them. And later he then gives us Abraham as well. You know Abraham, God came to meet Abraham. He said, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Abraham was saying, eh, but what are you going to give to me? The person that is in my house, I have no child. The person that is in my house is um, Eliza, he's my servant. And he says, look, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And it was after that that he then says, and Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, God didn't tell him to do anything, isn't he? So the person then said, you see, it's just about believing. But what he then quotes there is, in, in, in James, he says, Verse, 22, uh, verse 23. And the scripture, was, well, sorry, let me verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him in righteousness. Do you see what happened? When did Abraham try to offer Isaac? That was in Genesis 22. 
The encounter that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for as righteousness was in Genesis 15. What James is trying to say is that we as human beings can see that the evidence, or we can see that the faith that he had in Genesis 15 when he supposedly just believed God mentally, we can see that that faith was genuine because he then obeyed God as difficult as it was in Genesis 22. That was how the faith was made complete. In other words, the problem here is this. You and I cannot see faith because we can't see the heart of a man. The only way we can see whether there's genuine faith here is by what? Deeds. It's by your actions. The same thing with Rahab the prostitute. How do we know that she believed the God of Israelites above the God of our own people? Well, when the spies of the Israelites came, she hid them, and she didn't. She forsook her own people. That was the evidence of faith. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. And so James then wants to apply this in community. How will we know whether you possess genuine faith in living in community? So he wants to apply it to the issue of favoritism. So now let's go to chapter, verse 1. A living faith is impartial. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Simple. You mustn't. By favoritism, what does he mean? Look at verse 2 to 4. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes, old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what does he mean by favoritism? Treating people favorably because of what they possess and then treating people poorly because of what they lack. It's not supposed to be so. But it happened then and it happens now. Somebody comes in, the ushers look at him, they look at what he's dress, he dressed like, uh, sit at the back. Some people want to, uh, who's going to see the pastor? Well, where, where do you work again? Um, I work in Shell. <laughs> you like to see it. The pastor himself determines, uh, determines who he's going to counsel by those also who have, who have a high net worth. Or he decides who to rebuke or who not to rebuke based on how much they give. That's showing favoritism. And he said it's bad, plain and simple. Now, why is it bad? Well, James gives us three reasons. One, it violates the royal command. Two, it's inconsistent with God's character. Three, it reveals sinful people pleasing. It violates the royal command. It's inconsistent with God's character and reveals sinful people pleasing. So the first one, violates the royal command. If we go down to verses 8 to 11, it says, if you, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do, commit, if you do not commit adultery but commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. What's he saying? Now, James uses a word that we don't often see here, which is, he says, the royal law. Now, yeah, one translation can make it the supreme law, but it may lose something of it. By royal, we are talking about kings, queens, royalty, right? Which then infers a kingdom. And basically, what James is taking is something that is taught in the Old Testament, but giving it a New Testament meaning. Because 
It's a principle that is taught in the Old Testament, but is seen as those, uh, among those that are in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ. Now, what is this royal command? It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, the royal command. Now, I think John, uh, Jesus says it in another way. Listen, John 13, 34, 35. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. His apostle, uh, one of his apostles, John, says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another, 1 John 3, 11. What's going on there? And with all of this, if you commit murder, if you don't. Now, there is the love your neighbor as yourself, as it, relates to, as it related to the Israelites living among themselves. It was the summary, if you like, or the purpose, the summary law of all laws. They had many laws. Like, for instance, don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's bad. Don't commit adultery. That's bad. But he's saying, love your neighbor as yourself is the summary of both of them. That is, if I want to break it down, love your neighbor as yourself, then I have to start putting all these different things. So if you go on, on an airplane today. The air hostess can come and say, I have one announcement, love your neighbor as yourself. She will be correct. But you say, what, should I kiss my neighbor? Some guys would like to do that. Should I hug my neighbor? Should I, what, what, what does that mean? How is that being outworked? You say, oh, you are not allowed to smoke in this airplane. Oh, when, when, the, when we take off the flight, please don't open the emergency door. Do you understand? The loving of the neighbor itself then has to outwork into specific other commands. But the summary of all of them is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you then break some of the other sub-commands and you still claim to, live, to love them, you are still breaking that supreme law. And in the same way, just that, like Jesus never said, don't show favoritism. And you say, well, Jesus didn't command it. No, Jesus said you should love one another. And so when you show favoritism, you are breaking the commandment to love one another. Do you understand? Because actually, you are neither loving the rich or the poor. First of all, you disdain the poor. But the rich, you only get close to them because of what they have. What you actually love is material possessions. One has it, the other one doesn't have it. You are not loving neighbor. You are breaking the royal command. The second thing is that it's inconsistent with God's character. Now, even in the Old Testament, we see that God does not show partiality with socioeconomic class. For instance, if you take Deuteronomy chapter 9, and this is different from the other gods of the Hittites and all of these different people. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless, and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Do you see? In 2 verse 5, he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? Do you see that God looks at the poor in a different way than the world looks at the poor? He gives them a kingdom. He, 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 um, he makes them rich in faith. The question to us is, how do we look at those who don't have material means in our midst? 
What kind of church do we want to be? How do you look at them? Do you look at them with worldly eyes or do you look at them with godly eyes? Because you see, God gives them dignity, the world tramples on them. God makes them feel like people, like they are people. The world looks at them as objects. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The Bible is, and James is certainly not teaching a poor is equal to good and wealth is equal to bad theology. That's not what he's saying. Both rich and poor people are inside the kingdom and both rich and, and, and poor people are what? Outside the kingdom. I know some wicked poor people. Very wicked. And I know some very, very wonderful, godly, wealthy people. So this is not what he's saying. But he's saying that in this world still, Poor people have a harder time than rich people. Even if both of you are Christians, the poor person has a more difficult time. If both of you are not Christian, the poor person has a more difficult time. So the poor person has a tendency to look down on himself, and people have a tendency to look down on poor people as well. And so God is invent, he's in, he's inverting that logic because he looks at them with dignity. He makes them rich. How do you look at them? And then the third thing is it reveals sinful people pleasing. Now, this one is really funny. Really, really funny. Now, it's a bit of a pragmatic argument, but follow. James says, I'm not, are they, uh, but you have the son of the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? One. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Two. Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? James is saying this. I don't understand. Most of the people he's writing to are poor. So some of the people he's writing to, some of these leaders will be poor. He's saying, I don't get. You've told me before about the rich people in your midst that they exploit you. They don't pay you on time. And when, let's say you, are, you employed some people in your community, you didn't pay them on time. Then when you now, they, you talked and talked and said, ha, you're not paying me, you're not paying me. And the rich person, I don't have money. He said, but you have to pay me. Say, then I'll see you in court. The rich person said, I'll see you in court. And then the rich person doesn't show up. He just gets the best lawyers. They keep de delaying, delaying. Then you can't afford you can't afford a lawyer. So you are forced to drop the case. Not because you are wrong, but because he has more wealth. He can delay the justice system than you. He personally exploits you, but he also uses the system. He said, those are the rich people. Oh. But then when I come to church, what happens? You still keep showing the rich people favor. And then the poor people, you still disdain them. Have you lost your mind? Why would you do that? Now, don't get it wrong again. James is not saying, he's not advocating that you should pay, you shouldn't, that you should, that he's not saying there's, there's nothing wrong, is what the Bible teaches. In fact, there's everything right in paying good for evil. So James is not questioning the repaying of uh, good for evil. He's not, and neither is he advocating, they did do me, do me, I do you. God, no go vex. He's not saying that. He isn't advocating repaying evil for evil, but rather he's questioning paying good for evil while repaying evil for good. Or at best, neutrality. The poor have not done anything to you. They are not the ones that are dragging you to court. They are not the ones that are exploiting you, and yet you disdain them, while at the same time, the people who are actually dragging you to court, you are now favoring them. It doesn't make any sense. The only way it makes sense is that there is evil in your heart. You've judged with evil thoughts. That's what verse 4 says. Because you so want the acceptance of the rich people that even when they continue to exploit you, you will still be trying to favor them. 
You'll be talking bad about them behind their backs, but what you just, ah, come sit down, come, thank you, blah, blah, blah. And my friend, you get away from me. It violates the royal law. It's inconsistent with the character of God. And also it reveals sinful people pleasing. When you put all of these things together, James says this. If you continue to do this thing and you call yourself a Christian, I doubt it. In fact, he says, your actions are not entirely with somebody who knows that you are going to be judged. Verse 12. He says, act as though you will be, let me read it, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the Lord that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has been not been merciful. He says, when you treat the point this way, they are the ones that require mercy, you give them judgment. Is that what you are expecting on the day of judgment? Because if you continue this way, don't think you're a Christian. There's only one destiny for you. God will show you the same kind of thing that you've done. He will demonstrate judgment without mercy because that's exactly what you did. Which leads me to my last point. An impartial faith is salvific. I'm sure you can, someone is saying, look, I'm a very practical guy. I, I'm a real person. I, I see it something as it is. I hear what you're saying. It sounds very noble, but let's be real. We can't do it. We can't. We just have to be practical about these things, right? I want to be like the people that I, I hang out with. If I hang with poor people, I'll get a poor mentality, right? But if I hang around with rich people and I do good, don't you know what that is? I'm sowing into their soil. Do you understand? I'm giving good to someone. I remember um, this guy, a friend of mine, there was someone that called him to build a website. She was a leader in the church. She called him. The website normally is about 250000 that it was meant to do. Lady now called him and now said, I want you to build me this website. He said, but I want you to, I'm going to pay you, not in Naira, I'm going to pay you in dollars. Now, this time, the rate of exchange was about uh, 150. Sorry, the website was have been about 200, 200,000. So he said she was going to pay him in dollars. How much was she going to pay him in dollars? About 150. She was going to pay him 300 dollars. Yeah, do the math. It's 45,000 naira. But she now said, the issue here is not the amount. What is happening is that I am sowing foreign currency in your life. <laughs> do, you, do you understand? So he came to meet me and said, ah, Femi, I'm doing it. How much are you doing it for? I'm doing it for $300. Eh, what? He said, no, you don't understand that what happens is that is the, is the, I'm actually sowing into the soil because she receives foreign currency, so I want to receive foreign currency. And I said, is it a slap or is it a punch that you want for me to give you? So you say, okay, with the poor, if I keep hanging around with the poor, I'm going to continue to be poor, but if I show favor to the rich, I'm sowing there so that I can become rich. My friend, don't be deluded. Don't be deluded, and I'll even say this. Think more about what can happen at the end. Because it's not God that told you to do that. So if you say, I just want to be practical, that's how we do it. I'll say, well, remember, James is Mr. Practical. And Mr. Practical is not even saying that you should be a little bit, you know, don't be real. He's saying you should be more real. He's saying open your eyes. You are seeing one reality, the reality of the world. I'm saying you should open your eyes to a greater reality. What is that reality he's saying? He's saying that that reality is that both the rich and the poor belong to him. Belong to him. Verse 7, he says, Are they not the ones who are between the noble name of the one to whom you belong? Why is that important? Because it is not what you possess, but who possesses you that is important. 
I'll say that again. It's not what you possess, but who possesses you that is important. Who is the him that they belong to? Verse 1, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you are part of a church, if you are truly saved, it means that whether or not you are rich or you are poor, both of us belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a different kind of economics. In the world, the economics is about your material possessions. But in the kingdom, it is about whose possession are you? Does he possess you? And then say, well, well, I don't know. How, how, how? Maybe, I don't know. How did he possess me? What was that about? Well, again, the eyes. Worldly eyes looks at those who have great material possession, and it says you should do what? Favor them. They are favored, so favor them. When you look at the reality of God's own world, he then says, let us look at those who have spiritual wealth, and let's favor them. Now, we said they have given you three reasons as to why most of us are not spiritually wealthy. Without God, no one is really truly spiritually wealthy. Why? Because even though you didn't break that command, you have also broken the other command. Amen? And if you do that, you are a lawbreaker. You have sinned and you are liable under judgment. So there is, is there anyone that has ever done good? No, not one. Except one. You see, because there was someone who actually, when judged by every moral standard, he was eminently, absolutely, spiritually wealthy. And so what did God do? Of course, God did what all of us would do. If you see a materially wealthy person, you show him favor because he's the favored one. So what did God do? The very one that is so wealthy and spiritually, did God put his favor on him? No, don't you see it? How did we belong to him? You see, on the cross of Christ... God took the one who was spiritually wealthy and he did not show him favor. Why did he do that? So that those who are spiritually poor, he could show them favor. At the cross was the great exchange. The one who should have received goodness, he received judgment in place of the ones who should have received judgment. What did he do for them? He gave them mercy. It is at the cross... Ultimately, that mercy triumphed over judgment. When Jesus died for you and I, the one who had every right, God had said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I am pleased in him. If you are pleased in him, then why are you punishing him? It's because there are many that I am not pleased in, pleased with. I want to be pleased with them in him. And that's why in his resurrection, in his resurrection, all the people who have now believed in him also have spiritually resurrected so that the community, the gospel community, is not a community of those who are not favored. No, we are joint heirs with Christ. On the cross, he made us favorable. So God shows all of us favor. And that is why Favoritism is reprehensible. Why? Because it inverts the gospel. In the gospel, God shows those who do not have, deserve 
mercy, who, who are not treated by, uh, who don't deserve anything, he gives them favor. So why is it now that we, who have received that kind of mercy, when we look at those who also need mercy, we turn them aside? If we are truly going to be a church that honors God, if we are truly going to be a church that if other churches are like this and we see multiplied in this city, we'll see a gospel-centered movement. We have to be a church that is impartial. A church that gives dignity to those who are poor. It says in, in James 1.9, it gives them a high position. It says, rejoice in your high position. But then those who are rich, who may tend to see their high position in their material wealth, it says no. Remember, in your, your low position is the gospel that equalizes us. It says rejoice in your humiliation. Not that it's bad, it's, it's bad to be wealthy. No, he's saying this. Remember, through the gospel, you were a sinner. Your wealth could not buy you any, it couldn't buy you righteousness, neither could it buy you eternal life. But God did for you what he also did for the poor. He saw you in your low spiritual estate and lifted you up in Christ. City Church, I hope we can be that kind of gospel community. A gospel community that is impartial. Let us pray. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it has the ability to change us. We ask, Lord, that you make us truly a community where the gospel resides. A community where people are not treated in a way that is terrible because they don't have and people are treated with favor because they have. Help us to treat people the way you have treated them. That is, you've looked all of, at all of us as poor and you've made us rich in Christ and you have promised us an inheritance in your kingdom to come. Send your spirit to us that we can reflect you. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.